listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Kirk DeWint. Hey. You've been hitting some workouts lately. Yes, sir. You're fit, you're fast, and you've been sharing with the running public your workouts. And you posted a workout, and it got a bunch of traction, as it should. It's a good workout. And you had someone basically troll your, your workout. To be Maybe expected. Not troll it, but armchair quarterback it. And our episode is not about this at all, but I wanted to go all mama bear on you. <laughs> Wait, is this the soapbox you wanted to start with? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I wanted to go all mama bear and, and just be petty online and i didn't instead mm. i want to turn it into a teachable moment and just dissect it shortly for the running public and then we can move on my man has my back and damn yes. it, it feels good not damn mama right bear yeah this feels more man to man but thank okay partner bear part <laughs> partner bear i like it okay so what is uh what's your take what's your teachable moment well, I would like you to recite your workout and how you described it, and then I will read the comment, and then we'll break it down. A little whiteboard session here. I didn't know you were going to do this. It's <laughs> it's funny though because um, you was it you texted me after that, and you got you were real defensive on my behalf, and I it was oddly endearing. I called you. you called was it called me? It was oddly. It wasn't endearing. about that. I but I probably could have texted you the question I had. It was about our terrible recording software. Because it has just been screwing us ever mm-hmm. since it's been updated. It's been nothing but hassles. And we put out bad quality recordings a couple times now and we're sick of it. And so yeah. we're choosing new ones. But that's what I called about. But I could have texted, but I also wanted to just vent about this and say, listen, I wanted to defend you. I'm not going to be <laughs> that guy online. Uh, so. Okay. The workout was uh, two mile buy in. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I did two by 800 meters. Four by four hundred meters, back to two by eight hundred meters, and then closed with a two mile cash out. So basically, mm-hmm. it's two miles to get into the workout and two miles to cash out of the workout, and there's a mini ladder in between of eight hundreds and four hundreds. Yeah, and now, here's how you described it. That's exactly what you said, and then you you gave intensities for people to try to shoot for. Yeah, hard tempo for the first two mile buy in, goal five k pace for the eight hundreds faster than 5k pace for the 400s and then man or woman up and hit the last two miles cash out hard yep so hard tempo 5k pace faster than 5k pace and then see what you can close in ideally we we come close to the two mile we bought in at and if you're having a good day you're even faster but it's rare to see that but yes right so (laughs) here is the comment oh boy Your two-mile buy-in, buy-out seem more like 5K pace, race pace, than hard tempo. I'd call that threshold or sub-T. There's more to it. Critiqued your shoe choice. 
And I read it to Lisa and she said, wow, that guy sounds like a know-it-all. Your comment immediately was, wow, you seem like a (laughs) know-it-all. And the person basically just said, nope, but I'm not afraid to voice my opinion. I questioned your pace choice and terminology. And here's the issue. (laughs) When you you speak up online, you kind of have to be careful to make sure that you're right. There's a lot of things that people have opinions on, but questioning a running coach about running paces is kind of shooting yourself in the foot. So let me break this down a little bit, Kirk. This okay. this is the teachable moment. Hey, right. don't don't spout off unless you know what you're talking about. You said I ran hard tempo, then 5K pace, then faster than five, and then closed out hard. Mm-hmm. His comment. Your two miles seem more like 5K race pace than hard tempo. Well, let's break down what we know about you. Okay. Even if we don't look at anything else. Yep. You ran a 10.29 first two mile. Mm-hmm. What is your 5K PR? Well, in adult life recently? Yeah. Let's make it realistic. I haven't time tried. I think I ran 15.41 or 15.40 on the head or something a few years ago. And what is that pace? 503 or something? 503. What is 1029 two mile per mile pace? 515 for all Okay, purposes. so no, it's not. That's not 5K race pace. Nope. So first of all, that's incorrect. Strange yep. of him to chime in and say that that's wrong, to tell you that you don't know your pace when you're fitter than you were when you ran 1540 and 1540 is right around five flat pace. I'm absolutely more fit, correct. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. A, that's strike one. (laughs) I'd call that threshold or sub T. That seems like 5K race pace, so I'd call it threshold or sub T. Now we're just spamming terminology. (laughs) If you're racing a 5K at threshold, you're racing it wrong. (laughs) So let's break down what is threshold. Yeah. By the widest range of acceptability, threshold... Your lact, let's say he's talking about lactate threshold. He doesn't clarify. Yep. Because there, there's a whole host of thresholds. But lactate threshold, depending on the scientist and depending on the, how trained the athlete is, they're going to say anywhere from, let's give the most generous range, 36 minutes to 60 minutes of exertion, depending on where your inflection point is and how well trained you are and what scientist you're talking to. But 40 to 60 minutes is a safe range. Yeah. You said a hard tempo. He said that looks like 5K pace, which would be faster than a hard tempo. So he would label it threshold or sub T. That doesn't track. No. He said, I think that's faster than tempo pace. It's definitely 5K. So we'll call it threshold. Well, 5K pace for you is 1540, probably closer to 15 flat right now. Threshold pace is at fastest 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. So he's wrong again. (laughs) But then he doubled down and said, or sub T. Now, sub T, sub threshold is this newer concept that people are labeling for an old concept, newer term for an old concept, which is steady state or Mm -hmm. functional threshold power or something. You're talking slower than threshold. Well, well, what those both, and I know that's where your problem probably really lied with this was the fact that that the terminology used was incorrect, even if he thought it was at 5K pace. Well, whatever, but, um, yeah, both of those would insinuate there's some sort of control demonstrated and like a threshold or sub T, 
Uh, whereas if you were doing a 5K time trial or a race, that would not really demonstrate some sort of like control that would demonstrate maximum output. So they're very different, correct? So if you call 5K pace zone five, you would call threshold zone four. Sub T, sub threshold will be like zone three and a half. So you called it tempo. Tempo, remember, if you go back to our running terminology 101, tempo is based around trying to hit an established pace. And with my workout, my goal going into it, believe it or not, and I'm like a metronome this way, I'm pretty good at this. I wanted mm -hmm. to run 515s for that first two mile. That was exactly what I wanted to run. I went out hot. I actually coasted in right at 1030, 1029. So my tempo was a pace that I had set in my head. And then I said, when the workout's all done, I'll leave whatever I have left for that last two miles. So yes. Yeah, so I bought in at exactly the tempo I prescribed for myself was exactly what I hit yeah. on the nuts. So tempo was a catch all phrase, a temp, a catch all word that just talks about running faster. That's it. Tempo just describes pace. It doesn't give an exact definition for what the pace needs to be. It just talks about faster pace. So you gave an intentionally vague word so that people didn't have to read into it too far. Mm -hmm. And he analyzed it and said that word is wrong. I'll give you three better options. It's either 5K pace threshold or sub threshold. In fact, I didn't want to pat myself on the back too much by saying I plan to run 515s and I went out mm -hmm. and nailed it. I just right. said tempo. Correct. So he says, <laughs> that's 5K pace or threshold or sub T, which is basically saying that is 15 minute race pace or 30 or 40 minute race pace or 70 to 90 minute race pace. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> it's basically the least accurate insult you could give someone online saying you don't know your pace, but I do. And it's between 15 and 75 minute race pace. Lesson learned, Kirk. So this isn't. I wanted to make it about trashing the guy, but what I but what I'd rather do is make it about let's get back on the same page of terminology. I agree. At least if we're going to speak out, if we're going to run our mouths, let's back it up with some accurate accurate depictions of what we're trying to talk about. So, for anyone out there who is totally uninterested in threshold, just fast forward. For everyone else, go back to the running terminology 101 episode or Google lactate threshold, anaerobic threshold, sub T, steady state, FTP, any of those things and find exact definitions. Because while the word tempo is a catch all and has a lot of different connotations, every single one of those words has a scientific definition to it. Correct. Basically, it's, it's like if we're going to speak in this running community, we should speak using the same language. And I want us to be all on the same page. That way, when we talk about it, you understand it. And when you read other people's comments online, you can sift through some of the nonsense or actually kind of find out what exactly they're trying to say to you. Because half of the bad training, training knowledge is just having a bad translation. If you've ever used a translator, like I know a decent amount of Spanish, but I'm not fluent. Some online Spanish converters give you terrible, terrible translations. And then that's not actionable data. Same kind of thing with running terms. If we use the wrong translation of what we're talking about, you're not going to be able to accurately set up your workouts based off of it. So like that guy might have confused people, or if he went out and tried to do your workout himself, he would have run it at the wrong intensities and not got what he needed out of it. So I just yep. want everyone on the same page. I like it. Like I said, my man's got my back and I, uh, 
I feel really warm and fuzzy right now, but why don't we why don't we go ahead? I know obviously this is what you want to get at. Why don't we just you do you want them to go back or do you want to give them a quick definition here of these things? Well, I want everyone to go back, but I also want to give just a 10-second description of each thing. Okay, that's what I think we should do too. Okay. And by the way, our training terminology 101 is way back in the archives, and I know we've referred to it a number of times on the podcast, but really, I'll be honest, we nailed that episode. We didn't even know what we were doing at the time. It was so early on in this thing, but we nailed that episode, and that's one of our first training Tuesdays, like way back near conception. So go all the way back. It's one of the first handful of them. I forget which one. So, um, But you can Google the running public training terminology 101 and the episode will pop up. Yep. All right. So give it to us. Well, let's start with the words he used 5k race pace. That's really, really simple, but not everyone knows what theirs is. So 5k race pace is either the pace you have run in a 5k, the pace you think you can run in a 5k or the goal for your next race. Now a coach might call that, PR 5K pace, goal 5K pace, or estimated current 5K pace. But it just simply means the pace you can run for a 5K. So it's a non-debatable. Why looking at your 1029 two mile and saying that's 5K pace is just immediately, you know, that's not true because you've run significantly faster than that, even in training. So we know that 5K pace is the pace you run for a 5K. That's really obvious, but these terms need to be made obvious. And if you're going to relate things to 5K race pace, I would argue that um, if you're going to go out and race a 5K, um, at least in my uh, opinion, I'm not even looking at my watch the whole time. I'm not monitoring my heart rate. I'm going off of feel. It's too short of a race if you're looking to run 15, 16 minutes to even be worried about that. On your best day, your heart rate's still going to be way past lactate threshold uh, for a good bit of that race if you're, if you're truly racing it hard. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so heart rate... And then all these terms would even be out the window, in my opinion, in a, in a true 5K time trial if you're somebody who's looking Correct. to run in 15 or 16 minutes. But continue. And we're going to get back to why we don't look at metrics during that at the very end of this discussion. Okay. Next one, lactate threshold. That is just the point at which you are producing more lactate than your body can clear. You're always producing lactate. It's a byproduct of moving as a human being but it rises, the rate that it's being produced rises and rises and rises, and eventually you're pumping out more than you can get rid of. So your body is just pumping it out into your system and you can't get rid of it. That's your lactate threshold. At that point, you're on borrowed time, depending on how well trained you are. So lactate threshold, that is when you produce more than you can process out. The definition matters a little bit less than what it means. And that's basically the race pace that a poorly trained athlete can keep for 30 minutes and a world-class athlete can keep for 60 minutes. But it's usually 40 to 60 minutes of all-out effort. That centers right around your lactate threshold point. Yep. And by all-out effort, you mean like a managed and calculated effort to run your best over 40 minutes, not all-out from the gun and just slowly die until you hit 40 minutes. This would be like if you calculated your best race effort for let's say a 40 minute race you manage your effort well to exactly. run your best time yes yeah you should you should have the most clean line of effort across that you run out right as you no longer need it yep. you'll want one big spike and then a tail off as you die so if you did a 40 to 60 minute time trial somewhere in there that is your all out like starter hit pulls the, the the trigger the gun goes off and you blast for an hour as a well-trained athlete, that's about as fast as your lactate threshold could ever, or as slow as your lactate threshold could ever be. 40 minutes would be about as fast as it could be. But 
that is an important number for a lot of athletes. Then mm-hmm. sub T, that means slower than that inflection point where you produce more than you clear out, but higher than aerobic threshold. Aerobic threshold is where you're deriving your energy primarily through oxygen. So basically the talk test. If you can talk ceaselessly or breathe through your nose, the moment you can no longer do that, when I'm talking ceaselessly, I mean not stopping talking. Like full sentences, short pauses, if any, that sort of thing. Yeah, like you could recite the Pledge of Allegiance on repeat for 40 to 60 minutes and never have to pause. That's aerobic threshold or breathe through your nose for an hour, you know, hour and a half. That, that, that's your aerobic threshold. You, you, you don't need big gasps of oxygen to meet the energy demands of what you're doing. Just purely respirating keeps you fueled for it. That's aerobic threshold. You can go deeper than that, but basically, if you could nonstop talk, basically run like me when I'm on a run with you, that's aerobic <laughs> threshold. It's a good way to force yourself into threshold. Run, run with Bracken. Yeah. So somewhere between that point, the point where you need to start taking pauses in your breathing in order, or in your talking in order to get enough oxygen to meet the demands and that point where you're at your 40 to 60 minute race effort, that middle zone is sub T. It just means slower than threshold, yep. faster than aerobic threshold. It's a pretty small window, isn't it really? It really depends on the athlete, but yeah, think about it as marathon pace. Mm-hmm. Racing for a couple hours all out. Yep. It's not. If you took a snapshot at that point, at no point would it be spicy. But you can't chat that entire time. If you're racing a marathon, you're not going to talk the whole time if you have any amount of training in your body. You could talk in spurts just fine. You could even talk sentences, but you wouldn't recite the Pledge of Allegiance nope. for two and a half, three and a half hours. And then finally, why does 5K not get runoff heart rate? Well, it's because ability level takes that from like a VO2 max effort to a lactate threshold potentially all the way up to yeah potentially up to lactate threshold for a slower athlete if you're a 30 minute 5k runner you're approaching lactate threshold mm-hmm. you should keep an eye on it potentially if you're racing for 30 to 40 minutes for yeah. a 5k yep if you're a 15 minute 5k runner that's nowhere near it so there are people that could be running at your lactate threshold for 5k so 5k is not related to heart rate it is based on pace yep every other one of these terms are based off heart rate So if you wanted to apply terms to it, lactate threshold is 40 to 60 minutes, sub T, call it 60 to 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. Or more even, maybe if you're really well trained. But yeah. Because it's a wide spectrum. But most people, if they were doing a sub T workout, wouldn't go all the way down to two hour, two and a half hour race. Right, right, right. They just probably wouldn't. But yeah, running terminology 101. It's worth freshening up on or learning in the first place if you have desire to dig into your training if you don't it doesn't matter and just ignore the online trolls clear in the air that's good you're doing a service to the running public it's important you know more and more on instagram they're doing like uh, these targeted account feeds like when i scroll through like let's say instagram it's like half the time stuff's popping up on accounts i don't even follow actually more than half the time now and some of these i've seen now a lot of these fitness posts and some of these nutrition posts and some are really good, and I've followed a few people because of it, and then some is just completely 
garbage, yet people are buying into it. And I think people see something and they believe it without really discerning or dissecting what's the truth and what isn't. And so that is an example. And not like this gentleman's um, traction or comment got any traction. It's not like it started this long thread. It's not like got a lot of interaction or anything. But there are cases in which uh, you can be very misled. And so yeah. glad you brought it all up because I would have just let it slide. Well, as a – I hate to always be like, I was a teacher. But as a teacher – one of the things that's drilled into your head is that if one student has the question and they're willing to voice it, mm-hmm. a bunch of others are thinking the same thing. So anytime someone says something, you got to assume a lot more people are experiencing the same thing. I'll tell you what, this gentleman doubled down and responded. You know, he just doubled down in his response when I said that. Ah, looks like we got to know it all. So very convicted in his um, yeah. in his opinion or thought as well, which means that obviously that information has been learned incorrectly or fed to him incorrectly with some sort of conviction, which is also a little concerning. But I respect a double down on a comment like that. Yeah. A lot of people put their tail between their legs and, and uh, this guy doubled down, so whatever. Respect, I suppose. Tell you what, though, it doesn't pass the smell test. Someone said you did 5K pace start and finish. How long is a 5K? 3.1 miles? Yep. Could anyone on earth do two by two mile at 5K pace? Maybe with 10 minutes rest. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what two miles at 5K pace to start a workout feels like? Racing. <laughs> a 5K race. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Most people are lucky if they can maintain their race pace for two thirds of the distance on their solo own, yeah. in training. So, mm-hmm. all right. Enough about that. Should Thank you, Bracken. Some more information for the public? I really do. I think we should just uh, we should just make this a public service episode and follow up some other things that were said in a, in a previous episode that we just did. Clear some more air. Elaborate on a few things. What do you think? Got to. We had Justin Hamilton last week, and that man, he is one of probably, I would say only 25% of our guests do we get done, and I think we're missing the boat on not having video because – from time to time, I would say one in four, there's a guest who their video adds gravitas to mm-hmm. what they're saying. And he is. When It'd be easy, I think, to hear him because I listen to it afterwards when I edit it with no video. So I see him live and then I listen to him and I think, oh, seeing him live is the way to see him because you could take his words the wrong way or kind of like poo-poo him. But when you watch this man, he just exudes positive energy. He does. And it pairs with his words so well that you you watch him talk and you cannot help but believe that he believes every single word he's saying. Yeah. I find myself with him now. Now it's history has repeated itself in both of our episodes with Justin that uh, I just find myself like listening. Like if I don't know if you noticed, but may I don't know how the editing with the, the episode went, but a lot of times like you're just kind of listening and I almost forget like I'm a host. Like I'm like, I'm not I'm not guiding this conversation. He's guiding the conversation with his knowledge bombs and his storytelling. And so if I find myself listening and then forgetting that I need to interject to continue the conversation because he's so good at delivering his information. And so I was very ca- captivated the entire time. Like I could just listen to you without asking questions for a very long time. Monologue, mm-hmm. by all means. Do it for the whole two hours if you'd like next time because you find yourself in good directions. You don't need us to prompt you because you know where to take no. this thing. Yeah. So a very much exactly. enjoyable conversation. Well, and that's kind of why we want to follow up because there are guests where we're, we're talking and we're like, all right, we got to pull some more out of this. Uh, they're, they're not being super op- – they're not forthcoming, maybe not by any intentional mm-hmm. means, but you got to pull it out. 
Rarely that happens, but sometimes. The other is that someone's talking and it's just like, it's firing off ideas in your mind and you can't wait to ask the next thing to get even more awesome information from them. And then the third type is the Stephen Menia or Justin, where you're just sitting there like a little kid around the campfire, mm-hmm. listening to this wise old storyteller just preach. And that's how it is. And oftentimes we don't follow up the way we'd like to because we're just captivated. So this mm-hmm. is the follow-up episode to that because I got, I received many messages from my own athletes about, okay, so how does this look with our training, with our downhill work, with our ultra work? Was he saying this? And how does that combine with what we're doing? So I think this is just a, this is the post competition mm-hmm. show now. This is the breakdown afterwards. I always find when we have conversations, sometimes our training Tuesdays, sometimes our guests, we end up creating more work for ourselves as coaches <laughs> because people hear other people's successes and then are curious and want to implement strategies or things. And so I remember when we, uh, when we talked to Cole DeRosa about his Metcons, yes. uh, we talked about his Metcons being a key and he does them all the time. And then we followed that up, I think with the training Tuesday. And then pretty soon half of my athletes are reaching out about changing their programming and wanting to try Metcons. So it's like, Jesus criminy. I created like six hours of work for myself by going down this rabbit hole and Justin, damn you. You're one of those guys that got a lot of people thinking. And so for better or worse. What are your high flyers? What do you mean? Cole's Metcons. Mm -hmm. John Albin's high-end aerobic. Yeah. Justin's ultra stuff. VJ's mechanical speed work. Clary's 120% rule. Clary's 120%. And his frequency for lifting but lifting hard. Mm -hmm. Who are some of the other high flyers that have driven a lot of conversation with your athletes? Um, those are all, those are, you got them. That, that is forefront. All of those, I would say there was a little, there was a little curiosity, but it didn't get a lot of legs on Diaz's flow state training. There was some that were curious about implementing it, but I'm not Mm -hmm. a master of that, nor do I claim to be. So I kind of squashed that one right away, but, um, I can't Nicole miracle only running hill work for all Mm -hmm. her speed work. Mm -hmm. That was was one. one that got a lot of interest among some of my athletes. Um, I would say actually Danny Moreno talking about how she does such short interval sessions every week, even though I had a couple Mm. athletes asking about, Hey, maybe, you know, I wouldn't mind short sessions, even though I'm training for ultra marathons that was, uh, was brought up as well. But I think the flagship ones we mentioned. Mm -hmm. Hunters almost always drive something, but he doesn't like, I guess have a calling card because he is not static in his execution. He, he finds new events and he's constantly tinkering with his training but those those episodes where someone has a calling card that seems to be when it drives it drives conversation and mm-hmm. justin's is bullet oh he has two one is his mind that guy if i had to run an ultra i'd like to borrow his psyche for it yeah but there, his speak, bulletproofing speaking of hunter there was some i don't know where i saw it and i'm probably filling your minds with garbage that isn't true which is what we just said not to do but <laughs> i saw somewhere on the internet about some study that absolutely correlates like smaller biceps to faster running in marathon times yeah justin uh, like, justin brought yeah, it up was that what it was and found it uh, it was like yeah it was like yeah is that what it was yeah there was something anyways yeah so, so apparently that is true but i guess hunter would be the exception not the rule there's always outliers but nonetheless but of, of course of course a 130 pound man who fits the bill to run a marathon is going to have small biceps it all only makes sense it's not earth shattering but it's well funny. and at the tip of any sport 
the human body is whittled down to the most genetically predisposed to that activity type. It'd be like saying that uh, people under seven foot are less likely to play center in the NBA. Like, well, yeah, because look at the NBA. They take the people who are the best at what they do and were born to do it. That's why the marathon looks the way it does and the NBA looks the way it does and NFL looks the way it does. Yeah. At the highest, highest level, you can't get by without genetics and talent and work ethic. I think that there is a record I need to set or attempt to, and it has to do with either how much you can bench press versus your marathon time or how big your chest is compared to your marathon time. I think that's one niche. I wonder if I can contact Guinness and get in on that. Uh, I have a feeling a I could be. for that. Is there? Yeah, it's the, at the Arnold Classic every year. Uh-huh. I think it's called the pump and run. I've done a pump and run before. Where you bench your body weight. Mm-hmm. for max reps and then run a 5k and every rep you get takes x time off your 5k <clears throat> and the, the guy who the, the winner is always right around 30 reps and like 1540 or 1550 for a 5k that's pretty good that's immediate that's right very, into it. it it's between 20 and 30 reps all if you can get 20 reps of your body weight benching you are a very functionally strong athlete oh on yeah bench. huh I can do that. Currently, right now? Because I know you don't bench. Give me six weeks, sure. Yeah. Okay, anyways, well, another that's another time. Another story, another time. We'll figure but that out. But that would be a, that or body weight pull-ups and marathon mm. or 5K. Some combo of the two would be. That brings us back to what's your ultimate Kirk week? <laughs> Might be somewhere in there. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out. Uh, continue. You were talking. I interrupted, I think. I don't know. I think we were just saying that Justin's two things are his mental approach to the really long ultras. We almost, Danny talked about sub ultra mountain racing. Yep. Which is like, what would you call it? Half marathon up to marathon. And then there's ultra mountain running, but there almost needs to be a, another sect of that where there's ultra racing and ultra running. Mm-hmm. Right. Where you go 50 K through maybe a hundred mile. And then everything longer than 100 mile gets its own like high ultra or whatever you would call that. Justin specializes in high ultra. Justin said he needed to do speed work to get fast for his 100 miler coming up. He had to cut down to 100. Cut down to 100. Sharpen thing, up a little bit. Mind-blowing. The thing I was most impressed with <laughs> Justin, which I don't think needs any clarifying because if you listen to the episode, you picked up on it, but is I don't think I've ever heard a more calculated studied teach to the test in your training Mm -hmm. athlete in the two and a half years we've done this podcast the ideas that this came out of this guy's own brain in regards to approaching his training and approaching actual race day i mean it's not like mind-blowing it almost makes you feel a little dumb for not thinking of it but not only Mm -hmm. is he thinking of it all he's implementing it in his training and it's like duh of course he would do that why wouldn't you do that? Everything from the way he ices and cools his body down to the way he implements his training to the way he manages his sleep in backyard style ultras. It was just like there was zero room for error or chance. It wasn't like I'm going to go out and see what my body gives me today. It was I'm going to go out and I know exactly what's going to happen because I've thought about it all and I'm prepared for it all. And most people just kind of hang around and wait and then cross their fingers. And there's no finger crossing with Justin. And that's what I was most impressed with with him. 
oftentimes when I do a coaching consult or start up a new athlete, I hear, and you know what? I just don't know if I can ever get to the point they're at because I wasn't a lifelong runner. I didn't run in high school and college like you guys. I don't know if I can catch it. And I always say, yeah, you know what? You did miss out on that. You missed out. The biggest is learning how to race. Mm-hmm. I don't think, obviously the lifelong aerobic development is nice, but the height, the U S system doesn't focus on lifelong aerobic development. Like if you wanted to start someone at eighth grade and move them through to a 30 year old and say, yeah, you'll probably never catch them. That would be accurate. But high school, the system focuses on getting ready for three triangular meets a week and then conference and, and, and your States and college really periodizes each individual season. There isn't a chain together 20 year build. Mm -hmm. So I think you, you miss out on learning how to race 50 different styles of tactics. So racing is one thing you miss out on, but you also don't have preconceived notions. And Justin exemplifies what I'm talking about, where especially with ultras, the, the tougher races get, the steeper, the longer, the nastier, the more you have to answer the question, in my opinion, do I want my training plan to look beyond reproach or do I want my race results to be beyond reproach? Because we can build a beautiful training plan that doesn't fully teach to the, to the test. And he is the mm-hmm. master, like you said, of only doing in training what his test requires. How many times you work with an athlete who says, I want to go all in on this hundred mile ultra, but I'd still, I really would like to PR a 5k along the way, or all I've got <laughs> this, I've got this local race. Yeah. All of them. And I'm the same way. How many times nothing wrong with that. A, a stadium and an ultra at the same cycle? There's nothing wrong with it. A week apart. Didn't you even talk about doing something like that? Like it was like yeah. a week apart or, or a high rocks and an ultra a week apart. He's unencumbered by that. Justin has the most unassuming Strava you've ever seen for being such a monster because the, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the, what is it? The devil is in the details in there. Yeah. So his training plan, if you looked at it, you'd be like, well, where's your faster than threshold work? And where is your, your low rep, high weight strength training? And where are your specific, some sort of interval or, or tempo work? Where, mm-hmm. where, where are you doing your mechanical speed work? He can't answer those questions, but no one can answer the questions he's asking you on the race course at mile 30. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't build, build a beautiful plan. He builds a beautiful race. And I think that's takeaway number one from Justin, how to bulletproof for an ultra is you must decide how committed you are to teaching to the test. I agree with you. Absolutely. All of those things are things that um, I would rely on my fitness and say, well, fitness is what matters the mm-hmm. most and that's what's going to carry me through. And so all these other things really are are by the ways. Yes, they might need to be thought about, but my fitness is what really matters. And yes, but no, yeah. really, when you think about it. And so... Exactly. It's like Justin gets, you know, 30 hours into a race and looks to his competition who's still left. And is like, so what are you doing about those wet socks you constantly have? And what do you like? When are you going to get a when are you going to plan a, a nap in here? If you're running that pace, mm-hmm. you're never going to get one like that's unacceptable. How are you going to jump across this creek with me? You're going to bound mm-hmm. downhill with me. You can't at 30 hours. You had some sexy workouts. Come run this downhill with me after we've done 29,000 feet of descending. 
those are the questions that must be answered in training beforehand. So what were some of the, speaking of questions then, so what were some of the specific questions that you feel like you got or train of thought or uh, Mm -hmm. you got after the episode? Well, the, the first is about his specific strength work. And I think that he, you, you, there are people who train intuitively or eat intuitively. I think he lifts intuitively. When I asked the question about the strength training, he didn't give me a template. He talked about, I felt X, so I did Y. And then when I got away from Y, I felt Z. And so I did, you know, it was a, it was a moving target. He mm-hmm. trains intuitively in the weight room. He got done with her. And this is, again, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question, but how many times do we talk to athletes who are like, my calves just always cramp. I'm a calf cramper. Or I just, every time I hit the two mile, two hour mark in a race, uh, my hips start to cramp. My hip flexors start to. Well, he feels all the same things as everyone else, but then he goes and tries to fix it mechanically. And do I agree with every single style that he chooses? No. It's not the same way I would have gone about doing it, but it doesn't matter because it worked. He fixed mm-hmm. cramping. I don't know when the last time he cramped in a race is, and his last race was 40 hours. So mm-hmm. it's just, or 36 hours, whatever. It was 40 hours. With, what was it, 49,000 feet of descending and climbing? You like If you Something haven't like cramped there, I'd like to say you might have beat cramps. Mm-hmm. So he, he noticed that his VMO area, that if you look at your teardrop right above your knee, the, the lower piece on your inside, your midline side, that's your VMO. He saw that as a downhill weakness. And so he worked it with hundreds and thousands of little uh, leg raises with ankle weights on and banded monster walks and doing knees over toes, lunging and squatting on stairs combined with tens of thousands of feet of descending each week in his backyard but he targeted that one area and what did he have happen opposite side started flaring up so he started working that side and when he got away from it then his inside started so whenever anything announced it to himself he eradicated he went scorched earth through crazy amounts of reps both uphill downhill and in the weight room to get rid of his weak areas so that's what he did he taught directly to what his body was telling him he needed to teach to Yep, I don't believe he picks up dumbbells. I don't believe he touches barbells. I believe mm-hmm. he's mostly doing banded work, if I'm not mistaken, if that's correct. Banded but in ankle weights. And I'm a believer in our in our structured strength training, and I always will be. However, um, in a, in a, a sport in which we move pretty linearly in a single fashion uh, constantly. What he's really doing is he's bulletproofing all of the other angles and directions in which we aren't getting in our training. He's all the support staff he's paying a lot of attention to. Um, And the thing is, is in long races like ultras, it's the support staff that's going to take you out, not the main players typically. You're not going to you're not going to have to drop from an ultra because of, let's say, quad cramps. They're going to slow you down. Don't get me wrong. But if your IT band insertion where it connects in your lateral side of your knee goes on you. That pain you can't get through and at some point can't even bend your leg anymore. And so what he's doing is he's preventing all of those things that can take you out. All the non-sexy things are what end up getting you in an ultra. Not It's not like the things we deal with in shorter, hard, harder perceived mm-hmm. effort races. It's not those things. It's these all these little things. And so that was very eye-opening um, yeah. for me to hear. 
And the and the interesting thing, the parallels I drew was that he was doing what Renato Canova has done for years and what Alberto Salazar did for years. These are coaches who, yeah, they've had a lot of doping accusations around them. So I really, I want to be careful every time I recommend them. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if they are willing to do anything chemically to make their athletes better or to allow it and turn a blind eye to it, they're probably almost more worth looking into what they're also willing to try out in training. Like if they won't leave any illegal stone left unturned, we should probably notice what other stones they're flipping over. Mm -hmm. And they're both believers in doing fatigued quality work. Renato Canova was big on activating that final 10% of your muscle strands that you don't really use until you do full all-out sprints. He thought it was imperative for middle distance runners and marathoners because when your big movers go, he understood that the thing keeping your stride together, those final 200 meters of the, of the mile or the final five miles of the marathon was the support staff. And so mm-hmm. he did all out 30 to 60 meter hill sprints to engage those final pieces of his marathoners legs so that they were activated. And Alberto Salazar is huge on post race workouts. You've already worked really hard, but not for a huge volume but he called it like this golden hour, like the Goldilocks zone of you're tired, you're fatigued, kind of the same thing, mm-hmm. but you're semi-fresh in terms of your workload. So let's get a post-race workout in to capitalize on further recruitment of muscle fibers that we may not normally touch. Would he do Justin's that day doing, of or would he do that next day? Are we talking? Day of. He They're would be famous like- for it. Galen Rupp one time did like this crazy, I want to say it was, he went three by mile. And close to four flat after he set the American record indoor in some race. Like they're doing real work, spiked up work afterwards. Wow. And, and that's really no different. It's just a different means of doing what Justin's doing, which is address your support staff and get them fatigued. I remember when I graduated college and I was still like decided, I was just a few years out and I decided I was going to try run a fast 5k at, uh, at one of the races in Milwaukee where I was living at the time. And I was like, well, I've been neglecting my core. I'm going to I'm gonna do all the research I can find on strengthening my core. I thought for some reason that would help me. I was ready to do the little things. Mm-hmm. And I stumbled upon some of the, uh, like the Olympic training camp athletes. Back then, I don't know what training groups were going strong. But um, nonetheless, I looked up like core, best core for runners. That did all that stupid stuff. And mm-hmm. I got down this rabbit hole and I found the good information. You want to know what the core workout I landed on, focused on? my hips and my hip girdle and all the other things that people don't think of when they think of core. Um, the lat, it was like a lot of lateral movements, a lot of bridge variations, a lot of Jane Fonda on your side, weird mm-hmm. tweaked leg raising. It was all that stuff that wasn't sexy that like the top at athletes, like Olympian distance runners were being prescribed by either their strength coaches or their run coach. Mm-hmm. And I remember implementing those and how difficult they felt and how hard they felt. And then how that, um, translated to like stride uh mechanics when i was fatigued and i was like ah oh, there's something there's something to all of this and it it didn't have one crunchy in it it didn't have one yeah. sit up in it it had everything else which was just very eye opening and here justin is doing this intuitively um which makes it even more impressive although he does his study he's he's a he's a student yeah yeah and he's getting his masters in this stuff right now yeah. so but is it is the magic the fact that he's using ankle weights or bands. No, I would magic, say no. The magic is he said he's doing six hours of ancillary work a, a right. week. Man's dedicated. 
So should you all rush out and get bands and ankle weights? No. Some of you might be best suited to do that. But could you get the same result by doing barbell lateral lunges? Working on that side piece there? Yeah, you could. Mm -hmm. By, you know, knees over toes, could you do Bulgarian split squat and make sure that your knee gets over your toes and do it with barbell or dumbbells or sandbag or bands? Yeah. Yeah. The point is, identify the areas that will give out on you and submit them to your will rather than the other way around on race day. So that's a that was a, the big piece to me outside of teach to the test. It's actually then take your body's feedback. Your body's telling you something every time you cramp. It's not that you're not made for this. It's that you haven't built yourself for it yet. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what was the next thing or other things that were brought up um, by athletes? The downhill work. Okay. How much? Because both he and John Albin have showed that. Okay, let, let me back up. What you and I started with were some science research, some studies, some papers that showed that when you train eccentrically, basically think your leg fully extended out in front of you, impacting the ground. That is eccentric loading. And that's what you're getting when you're running downhill. When you train that way, it's highly damaging. It improves relatively quickly, but you need a lot of rest in between. And then you only need every 14 to 20 days a stimulus, up to 20 days. One stimulus every 20 days, once you've put in your prerequisite work in that area, to maintain the benefits of that scientifically. Mm-hmm. And so we we usually advocate the minimum viable doses of things on this podcast because it's how you stay healthy. But John and Justin are running vert every day. And that's brought up that question, which is, all right, so if the minimum viable dose is what you've been talking about, what's best for me? And well, Justin, I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, um, is pretty much getting to the top and going full send most days, if I understand. He's not babying descents. He's saying, I'm just going to sink my teeth into what I consider my strength. And then what happens on race day? Guy passes him on the climb, and then he puts all that, pulls all that back, and then some on the next descent with less effort. Because it takes a lot of, I'm going to say it takes less effort to descend well once you're good at it than it does to climb well, especially from like Mm -hmm. a um, a metabolic standpoint. And so uh, we have this, like the two things that I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around are the John Albin super shoe recovery deal, like. God, it makes sense and it doesn't, right? It's like, but it makes more sense yeah. than not. I can buy into it and then, uh, which is like, I'm going to mitigate damage on my recovery days. I'm going to work a more economical stride. And we already dissected that on a previous episode. And then you have Justin, who's almost, it's like, feels like it's on the opposite end where he's like, sure, I'll, maybe I'll climb aerobically today, but like, I'm going. He's, I'm going full send on my descent mm-hmm. every time because that's how I want to race it. And a lot of times you can do that without too big of a metabolic stimulus, depending on the descent. And so, um, those two things really stand out to me. Something like I'm yeah. thinking about on my own right now. And that descending piece is big because he'll say, well, you know, in training, I might do 15 or 20,000 feet of gain in a week. And every single descent has been run with intent. Yeah. 20,000 feet of and, intentional descending a week. Well, and that's, that's a piece that I have starred that I want to get to because there were questions about that. And I've had some conversations with him, not on the podcast that I think can help clarify what, when he, because I said, 
what did he say originally? He ran it with conviction. Conviction, yeah. And then he not backtracked, but clarified to maybe purpose. But when he clarified, he actually brought it down one notch. To I'm not dawdling, but I'm not not full send. And what that and I've talked with him a little bit about this offline as well. And uh, I I think I can confidently. I, that's a funny phrase. I think I can confidently. <laughs> it's an I think I can right confidently there. clarify for everyone that he's not full send all the time, but it's like tempo descending. Mm-hmm. He's in. He he's choosing a pace to descend at that's not easy. And I think it's mirrored by Danny Moreno's when I asked her, like, are you are you flowing the downhills or are you hammering them? And she said, Oh no, flowing them. I get, you can't hammer every time, but I don't dawdle. I flow them. And by well, flowing, it means getting down as fast as possible without revving the engine. Yeah. Opening Looking at how water up. would get down a hill. If you dumped a bucket of water, a giant, like a helicopter bucket of water, it would rush down through the hill. But it would follow the path of the earth, and it would just take the fastest, best route down. That's what they're doing. Now, if you sat at the top with a fire hose and sprayed it down, that would be how you would descend in a race when your life was on the line. And then if you think about someone just breaking and easing their way down, that's how a lot of people descend. Mm -hmm. So they're flowing the downhill with intent, but without redlining for a lot of their descents. And then they both tactically hammer. He, He does it with his FKTs or segments. When he's ready to hammer, he goes after all out, like eyes glazed over with tears because of the wind and barely seeing mm-hmm. the steps in front of you. And it's almost like 80-20 training with his downhills is how I understand it. But he's but, not going easy ever downhill. He's flowing his downhills. Yeah, and you got to think, like, if you're getting 100, 200 miles into a race, um, the resistance to impact being built you know, in that regard, um, has to pay off down the line later in a race like that. And a lot of times too, what happens if you're doing something like a lot of eccentric load is it puts so much damage into the muscles, the hips, especially quads that it doesn't really allow you to work that hard for the next subsequent days often as well. So it's like a built-in limiter. Yes. Your muscles are fatigued and need rest, but also when you smash them like that, that regularly, he's probably still following 80, 20 principles with his metabolic conditioning. Meaning Mm -hmm. like he's probably not revving the heart rate higher than he should for the amount of time that he should, but he's getting so much muscle, but he's like maximizing muscle damage and adaptation without maximizing cardiac output, ultimately leading to burnout. And that's what mm-hmm. leads to burnout, not repetitive muscle damage, but repetitive cardiac response. That's what's going to lead to burnout or overtraining syndrome. So what does he do? He just goes and smashes the shit out of his legs on the downhill, but isn't really requiring his system to work harder than it should. And he's still following right, correct protocols there. So it's like yes. a very interesting concept to be like, I'm all in on damaging muscles, but I'm really not all in on like, I'm still following core training principles. But I'm yes. just tweaking it a little bit. And that's like the, the nuance there that's actually really interesting to like dissect i think if that made sense i don't know if that made sense but i think it does because you're it's not like running flat and fast where you have to damage your nervous system and your respiratory system the same way but where a lot of people are is pre justin hamilton hill training which they want to get there but he hasn't really talked about how he started there Hmm. we see him in it now able to handle it but none of us could really jump into that. And so I think that it's like this balancing act. 
Initially, I believe you have to program intentional downhill, avoid monster days, and hit more frequently. Mm -hmm. A couple times a week, some intensity downhill, but limit the duration. And then as you get better at that, you start having monster days, and you reduce the need for your actual like speed work downhill. And now you can start to flow downhills. So you get your big days, your nasty days, and everything else is net faster, but it's much easier than it used to be. Because just like flat ground speed, your first couple times you go out to run 8 by 200 you feel like a baby giraffe. Mm-hmm. Just it's awkward and weird and you're sore afterwards. But after the third or fourth session of that, you're just better at it and it costs you less. You're not fighting for speed, but you're running faster. That's how downhills are. They're so uncomfortable early on, but if you can make it through that discomfort stage, now you've unlocked faster, free downhills. And he's mm-hmm. to that point. John Albin's to that point where they can flow a downhill with less effort than everyone around them, but go faster. And so most people have to start with the accruing damage stage and accruing their skill. And I think that's best done through planned downhills. Yeah. Or just, I mean, getting time out there. I mean, obviously, is in any capacity, it's just hard to have your skill match your fitness and then get out Always. of it what you, know, what you need. So what else do you want to add to the downhill conversation there? Anything jump out at you? Well, he's intentional about his downhills. I think a lot of times myself included we just say early on i've got to thrash myself on the downhills and it's an all-encompassing term or he's centralizing where the thrashing occurs mm-hmm. he's constantly running that internal dialogue of how is my foot hitting the ground he's thinking about his toes spreading he's thinking about where underneath his his central load of impact is he hitting under his center of balance is he hitting how his legs are cycling through a lot of times I turn to, I start flailing, my hips get out of line a little bit, my knees start circling around. He's churning with the best form possible all the time. And I think that that's important to realize is that we want to practice our best stride just like we would on sprints, just like we would on our mechanical speed work or our flat ground threshold work is that we want to use the stride that's our best and the stride we're going to use in a race. And he does that. So riddle me this question then. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say people are thinking about this. And they're like, okay, well, maybe downhilling more frequently is a good way to bulletproof my ultra training. Um, and I don't know about you, but I got a few WTMers. I got a few Spartan Ultra World Champers. Um, I've developed quite a crew of these ultra athletes, which has been fun, a lot of fun. And you get to play a little bit with ultra athletes, which we don't talk about yep. as a coach, but it's kind of my favorite part. Um, and by the way, I want to give a shout out to my two athletes who did Ode to Laz. Um, Jay Fettig, seventh place, 100 miles, made it over 24 hours. They had a lightning delay, so it was longer than that. But seventh place, and I believe he, they get, they got a chance to listen to Justin's episode, so I'm going to follow up and see if they got some pointers. And then Sophia Congratulations, Harnady. Jay. That's a big, that's a big effort, man. Um, and then Sophia Harnady, she did six laps, which um, she wanted to just stay ahead of being timed out, and she uh, she did that for six rounds, which is still twenty five miles effort. Sounds fantastic. But that's a lot of. You hear six rounds, you think, oh man, could I've got seven? You think what six round means? That's practically a marathon. Correct. Yes. Um, they ran <laughs> very awesome. different races, but yeah, it was fantastic. So shout out to those guys. But anyways, um, what I was going to ask you about is, so if we're going to take this approach. Mm -hmm. Um, are we, 
like do you do you go and let somebody like find a long smooth groomed trail to run down like a like a service road or a cement road or do you think somebody should tackle technical because here's the deal i can run down a cement road at recovery heart rate effort open up my stride and take a ton of damage with not mm-hmm. really working that hard whereas technical terrain is going to force me to add skill to the mix and maybe as a result, add some intensity to, to my heart rate response, for example, or I just have to work harder to get the appropriate damage. Um, would you have any thoughts on what terrain somebody should pick if they're like, I'm going to try this out? Yeah. And I think you have to do both. I agree. And, and, and the people who live in the mountains don't have to worry about this because John might go on six different routes on six different runs and he's going to hit some flowing gradual, you know, groom downhills or some slab running. And then he's going to hit some technical Rocky scree running. He's going to get it all naturally. We, by we, I mean people who have to intentionally find and manage vert. I think you have to script both. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot, Kirk, in this, Oh, I hate to even label it comeback training block. A return <laughs> to form training block is how do I want to build damage? Because I want to get to the point that they're at where damage is accrued. It has been, and now yeah. I sit there and draw interest and get more and more skill-based. And I think you have to have both. I think you have to have those re- really damaging shallower hard grades where you can run harder and really impact the ground. And then the technical stuff where you work on pairing your eyes to your feet. Yep. I think it has to be done. And I think early on, now I, I say, I think, because this is an ever evolving concept for me, but I've tried several ways. I tried the Colorado route where I was getting to the top of whatever climb I was getting each day. And I had to get to the bottom anywhere possible. And I was initially just, thrashing it all who cares about it let's just get to the bottom and then i had coming off a surgery style where i only did perfect reps and i think you need a bit of both Mm -hmm. what i like to do is have days where there are perfect rep days maybe it's on your gradual downhill maybe it's on your technical but you run only the way you're supposed to until you have to stop and then you chop 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 and you break as fast as possible Mm. And what I found that does is that overloads that knee over the toe feeling, that patella area, that VMO area where you're really taking damage. But up until that point, you've only been rub- running light on your feet and dainty and fast and smooth. So you kind of combine the two. And at the beginning, you might only get 20 seconds of each rep before you got to jam on your brakes and break, 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 break. And then come to a stop, get it under control and do it again. And you work your way to the bottom of the hill in a series mm-hmm. of perfect reps. Yeah. And then you pair that with days where you maybe dial it back a little bit, use the same principles, but don't rip and make it all the way down. And over time, the two are going to converge. Yeah. That's my current way of thinking about it. No, that'll make sense. I think, um, I think the lower your skill, if you're looking to maximize damage and you know, you're a poor downhiller, um, I think, I think if your skill level is low, then I think you actually go pick out your cement tiller. You go pick out your gradual one for the stimulus, at least like, let's say, and then you, like I said, converge them. But yes, you still need to go out and get on that technical terrain. But really for the adaptation we're talking about, you need to be able to like hit it properly, which might mean like 
although focusing on like some smoother terrain is obviously not going to help you with your technicality. It is going to help you create the damage we're talking about without the effort. And so I think it has to be a combination of both is what I'm getting at. Because you're a poor downhiller doesn't mean you only go hit technicals because that's what you need to work on. If we're truly looking to maximize durability, I think you still, it's okay to go and not have to think and so you can run downhill free of um, your skill level getting in the way. So I still think both should happen is what I'm trying to get at. Yes. Yeah. And downhills are, I have a caveat with the, the hard, compact, easier to run downhill in that it allows you to take bad damage as well as good damage. Where it's hard to get a stress fracture running down a grassy mountain. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy to get it running down a paved road. Sure is. And your skill, lack of skill, can hold you back from injury of impact on a mountain, even though it's going to like enhance the likelihood of you falling and getting hurt. Yep. But your lack of skill on a, a, gra- a gravel or a concrete road is going to enhance your ability to get injured because your skill isn't holding you back. You can still make it to the bottom, but you're going to make it down sloppy. Hmm. So that's where that knowing when to pull the plug and get yourself under control is important the earlier you are into that process. Yeah, it's fair. Good advice. It is, it is dangerous. It is. Downhills are dangerous. The most wrecked I have been in the last three years, four years, is uh, the week after the San Luis Obispo race in March. I went on a little vacation. I did this cement climb which is like 1400 feet of gain i went up and down it three times and i basically raced down it um i don't think that left my body for six or seven days and i didn't have a good workout for almost two weeks after that how fast was your fastest two mile split running down that concrete hill (laughs) i think it was 906 (laughs) 906 so 433 per mile yeah in what shoes (laughs) uh hoka speed goat fours I'm going to go on record and say that no one in the history of the world has ever run a faster two mile than 906 in speed goats. <laughs> Probably not. However, no speed I, goat has ever run faster. What I'm getting at there is um, I would climb and my heart rate would get up into the 170s. I planned to work hard for two hours. I had some frustration after San Luis Obispo needed to work it out. This hill took the brunt of it for me. Um, and I was climbing pretty hard, getting up into the 170s, turning around and running hard downhill. My heart rate was still dipping into the 150s at times, at least for the first couple of reps, um, with maximum damage. And all I'm getting at is, like, that workout changed me, and it changed my body's ability to resist impact because I know that because I didn't have a good workout for two weeks after that because I was so wrecked. But after if I, if I lived out there and could repeat that, I just imagine what the um, bulletproofing that would do to my leg. Yeah. But to follow up what you said, the damage I took was incredible. And that workout would be very dangerous to do on a regular basis until you built up uh, the resistance. So yeah. thank you for saying that. Cause I left that out a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's just wild. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, the type of work you can find if you want to. Yeah. So let's, let's move on here and try to get maybe five or 10 minutes more. What other things do we need to pull from that episode or clarify? I think you mentioned one more thing to me before we started recording. Say it. Say it because I I think I'm focusing on a piece that we hadn't talked about but that thinking about him talking is brought back up. No, some things that needed some clarifying. You'd mentioned that maybe there were some things that needed some clarifying. Yeah. Yeah. So so why don't you lead me back into that? No, I want you. I'm saying now that's all I'm giving you. (laughs) Do you remember? No. (laughs) I thought that would jog your memory. All right. So we talked about his teach the test 
we talked about downhill work and intentionality of it. Mm-hmm. We talked about his weight room work. Yep. What was was there anything else? What messages have we received from athletes? I don't know, Bracken. Maybe we're losing our minds. I'm sure definitely at some. some point. Uh huh. Got a lot of shoe questions, but we always do. Because he had six pairs of shoes. As well he should. Mm-hmm. As well he should. Maybe some would say not enough. Well, maybe we're just going to have to leave it at that then. Yeah. But I think I think the main takeaway, I think the big like overarching theme is, although a lot, like Justin thinks outside the box, in a sense, like we get put into this narrow training focus, this narrow scope of how this should go and working our metabolic systems and doing and checking the big boxes, right? Checking the big obvious boxes that we need to check to get to and then get through race day with relative success. And I believe Justin's success is in checking those small, tiny boxes that get overlooked in between the big boxes. And if you're going to take anything away from his episode, it's like if you're going to split hairs, if you're going to beat people who are objectively more fit than you, you're going Mm -hmm. to beat people who on paper you should never beat, which is what Justin does all the time is the details, the little boxes, the things that are going to take other people out that they're not prepared for that you are. And in backyard style ultras and long ultras, it's who can endure the, the small jabs to the face constantly. It's not the knockout blow that's going to take you out. It's that 25th hit to the chin that somehow is going to knock you out. And that's what happens. That's how Justin wins races is he wins because of all those small boxes being checked. And I think if you get anything out of it, that's, that's the thing. Justin shouldn't be winning, and he's winning. That's huge. That should give you hope. It should. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people would kill to break 20 in a 5K. Mm-hmm. But most able-bodied adults, adult males, will come close to breaking 20 minutes if they put in enough training. Not all, but many of them <clears throat> have a chance to break 20 in a 5K if they're able body and put in enough training, mm-hmm. that's his only fitness requirement for a male. Back it yeah. off a few minutes for a female. Break 24 probably. And you have a real chance of winning a backyard ultra. I know that if I went out and do a backyard ultra, um, I right now would absolutely get it handed to me by him. I am telling you there is a 0% chance I beat Justin Hamilton in a race of that nature, even though my top end metrics are far beyond his, all that ancillary stuff in his makes me go home with sucking my thumb, my tail between my legs and Justin holding a first place trophy. So, yeah, and that's it. If it's like, and I think it's just like poses a really good. And again, Justin's a great athlete and he is fast. So I don't want to belittle how fast he is. Cause he is fast, but it's like, it's like, if you're one of those athletes who are out there and you're just thinking like, God, I'm like so sick of taking 10th place in my five care. I'm so sick of being, you know, 14th in my age group, every race. Like, I don't feel like I'm ever going to break through. Now I'm not telling you to give up on that because chances are you can break through, but a lot of people then ask like, well, where is my place? Well, go out and find it. And sometimes people mm-hmm. go out and find it in these like DNA soul searching, changing type races where fitness becomes less of importance and attitude preparedness, mental, uh, fortitude, all just pass any fitric metrics you could earn so i just think it's it's worth thinking about for some people 
When we talked a long time ago about how to build your off-season, how to choose a skill emphasis for an for a base building block, I said something along the lines of, think about what if my main competition did something over the off-season, a lot of it. What would, what scare would frighten you? me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What if they did a ton of downhill work every twice a week for 12 straight weeks leading into our first race? I would look at that and think, oh, shoot. Justin has made a living out of that. He is the embodiment of that what if. He just doesn't choose it for a segment, though. He just lives it. Mm-hmm. What if I just bulletproofed all the ancillary pieces and got so that I could descend as hard as I wanted for as long as I wanted? Full stop. That's his training plan. That's not his off-season skill progression. That's just what he's owned. And you can be born with something, or you can just carve out a corner for yourself and defend it with your life. And that's what he's done. Like you said, that should be encouraging for people that, what if I just did that? What if I became the best heavy carrier on the planet? Never got outcarried once in my life. What if I did an obscene amount of heavy carries that no one else would say belongs in your training program? What would happen? No, it doesn't matter what the skill is. You can own a skill, even if you weren't born with it. Heck yeah, man. So the thing, my last piece I want to say is you're talking about checking that box. Yeah. He's checked the box. And and I think that the longer the race goes, the more important how you check the box becomes. And I kind of think, think of it like this. Do you remember back in the day when you would take the like the Iowa basic skills test or whatever your elementary or middle school testing was. And you had to use a Scantron sheet. Mm-hmm. There are people that don't know what a Scantron sheet is anymore, but Bless. If you had to use a number two pencil and you had to fill in your, your circle completely. And then they would, they would feed it through a machine and it would grade your test for you. It was all circles. Well, there were times where if you didn't fill it dark enough or full enough, it didn't count it as an answer. So even if you filled it, even if you checked the box, it didn't get you the right answer. And the longer the race goes, the more it's like a Scantron. Where the darker you can make that box, it matters. Mm. Checking a downhill box versus filling it in three quarters versus making it so dark that you couldn't even see there was a, ba- a box under there in the first place. And that's what Justin's done. His box is just darker than anyone else's. He may have less boxes but they are so dark. Scantron analogy. Bravo. Who would have thought? When was the last time you said the word Scantron? Uh, probably senior year of high school. Wow. Yeah. I'm impressed. Are you sure they're not using those these days? I'm not sure. Hmm. That's actually a really good way to put it, though. That's a very simple way to wrap your head around that. That's true. So figure out which uh, bubbles you want the darkest. Right? He does not pay lip service to anything. No, he does not. Nope. He does it all the way. Mm-hmm. I like ending on that note. That's a good, uh, that just puts a, a exclamation point on, on everything we just said, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, how's your return to running going, Bracken? Let's fill in the listeners real quick before we well, sign off. I'm enjoying it. I am taking a very interval-heavy approach still. I've been doing aerobic threshold intervals, Kirk, and I've stuck with that and doing a lot of them uphill. Okay. And so instead of monotonous 30 to 60-minute easy runs waiting for something to hurt, 
I'm still doing three to five minute bouts of work at a fun stride. Okay. So my average heart rate for the runs are still like 140, but I'll let it get up to like 148 by the end of my interval session and then drop down to 120 before starting back up again. So I'm still getting to watch races. I'm still getting to run like a fast, invigorating stride in super shoes using some John Albin approach every Mm. other workout, but I'm not taking any damage. Awesome. So that's the approach. We're doing interval style in a sense. Uh, Not every day, but every other day so far I've run intervals. I'm running intervals three to four days a week, depending on the week structure. And how is everything feeling? You feeling like your body's coming back around? It is. uh, My lower rear chain is still weak. Hmm. Calves, Achilles are the first things to bark at me, which is good. It's not my gut. I was going to say, how's the lower abdomen feel? Okay, good. I got under a barbell for the first time this week. Um, Light, very light, like Mm -hmm. 40% of max weight Mm. started with. Smart though. Uh, Maybe even less. I I did a three by five on bench. I wanted to get under there, puff my chest out, really arch that stomach. And Mm -hmm. it was tight. And I got a few more degrees of arch each each, uh, set. But I started with 85 pounds. And then what, 95 and then 105 for three by five. Having to be pretty cautious. That's smart, though. There's no rush, and that's the beauty of this right now. None. No so rush. I'm just taking it through its paces right now. I front squatted. I did three by five at, I think, 45, 55, 65. <laughs> just getting used to yep. bracing underneath a bar with my elbows up. and He's on his way back, folks. That's right. I did some body weight pull-ups and push-ups. Woo! You don't realize how much pull-ups and push-ups contract your core and lower abdomen until you actually have something that's wrong with it. Yeah. I mm. reached up and grabbed it and thought, oh, I'm not ready for this, and I waited another week. I was yep. ready to do pull-ups. Yep. Wild, isn't it? When I did, uh, I did, then we let's sign off, but I did uh, 500 pull-ups for time a couple of years back, two or three years back. Uh, got done with it. All, I was smoked. I was very happy. I came up with a plan. I did it. I think I was like 49 minutes and some odd seconds. I don't remember what Ooh. it was. Anyways, for the next five days, uh, my lats were sore. My biceps were sore, of course. The two most sore places on my body was where my tricep inserted into my elbow from lock because I locked out every time on the bottom, which I didn't expect. And then my core was more sore than I've ever made it in my entire life. And I'm not exaggerating. And all I did was all I did was 500 pull-ups. Something was going on there that my body and I was doing core work at the time. So point being, yes, it's being very engaged in pull-ups. So it's sore. a dynamic bracing. Insane what it did to me. Insane. Wild. I my first really hard CrossFit workout I ever did had toes to bar, windshield wipers, and then on the floor windshield wipers yep. with 135 I'm holding on the, the bar. Yeah, those will get you. I was so sore. We had a, a Jetta at the time. I looked like I was walking out of fresh out of surgery trying to get down into the car because my abs were so sore. I was so sore I could barely get in and out of the car because of my core. It's engaged, man. I'm telling you. Yeah. But anyways, good to hear, Bracken. I just wanted to check in on that, let people know that you're, you're back in action. All right, man. See y'all. Bye, folks. Bye.